Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue through the book of Romans, as during this sermon, we are seeing how our justification affects how we live and how we relate to the law. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Ugly Sin Meets the Good Law. Chapter 7, one thing I'll uh, uh, remind you of is that after the service, we will have a business meeting to communicate, kind of pass along uh, some of the information of sort of where we are in the uh, building project and such, saving up for that. Romans chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 again. We will most specifically be looking at the truth in verses 7 and 12, but that truth is made throughout the whole passage. We've seen that kind of thing happen. So please begin with me in verse 1 as we read. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Let's pray. Our merciful God, We come to a a chapter and a section that is not easy. We've been having to do a, a, a lot of sort of beating our heads against the text to try to understand it. And we ask, oh God, that you would give us understanding. Father, you've told us that you will send us your spirit to lead us into all truth. And so, Father, we pray that you will give us of your Holy Spirit this morning in a greater measure. Um, I desperately need grace And I pray that you would enable me, empower me to be useful, to be clear, to teach and show your truths. And Father, I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are receptive and humble, 
and that we would come to understand and then in understanding, oh God, be changed. So I pray, Lord, that we make progress today. We pray, we make progress in knowledge, but Lord, that it would not stay simply in the realm of knowledge, but that it would lead us and inspire us, oh God, to obey you. So I pray, God, that that would be part of the end, the part of the application that you bring, oh God, that we would have more joy, more delight, more desire in obeying you. We love you. We want to obey you. Please increase that want to and that desire. So Father, we pray, instruct us in every way that we need. And Father, even in the ways that your word doesn't instruct, but those places that we just need addressed, we pray you'll send your spirit to work on us. So please bless this time, protect it, O oh God. Help us to think deeply and rightly and worship as we draw near. So please, O oh Lord, be with us. Give us grace. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Let's imagine that there was a man who fell in love with a wonderful woman, like 10 leagues out of his league kind of wonderful woman. And let's just pretend that this woman was incredible in every way, immensely godly, like as godly as Eve before the fall. And the man fell in love with this woman and he said to her, I would do anything to get to marry you. And she said, well, I'll consider that, but you need to know I'm not interested in being married to an ungodly man. I'm not even interested in a mediocre man. I, I want a great man. I want a, a man who's going to lead us in godliness and righteousness. And so the man said, okay, tell me what I need to do. And so she gave him a list of her expectations. She gave him her standard. We'll call it a law because you know where we're going with this. She communicated her list of standards and said, if you will live these out and prove to me that you can be a great man, then I will marry you. But let's also imagine that these expectations, these standards that she communicated were so high and so lofty, fallen, sinful man, you know, like us, just could not live up to them, could not could not keep from falling short. Now the illustration falls short here because maybe you're thinking, well, that makes the woman sound petty. And you know, God is not. God is infinitely worthy that he has given us a standard of perfection and righteousness. Righteousness was the standard that we were given from the beginning and it is worthy of that. But also remember Jesus would sometimes give illustrations that couldn't be taken to their absolute end. Uh, only meant to illustrate just one point, And so that's what's happening here. So the man tried and tried, but he was unable to live up to these standards. And so finally the woman said, well, I will marry you even though you can't meet them. But, but if you'll answer me this question, will you love me? And will you strive to live up to greatness? Will you seek to live up to the standards? And the man excitedly said, yes. I want you to think about the difference in how the man now relates to her standards. Before this, he was trying to keep her standards in order to gain her love and acceptance, in order to get to marry her and be joined to her. But then she said, I'll marry you even though you can't live up to them. But then after that, how does he relate to her standards. He's not under them in the same way, 
but he does still see them as a guideline for how to love her. His relationship is not just entirely about rules, 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 but he loves her and wants to live up to this. And he also realizes he married up and he ought to treat her like the wonderful woman that she is. He is motivated by joy, even though he's not under her law. The illustration has weak points, but I want you to see this one primary truth that we are seeing in Romans 7. All mankind is born under the law of God. There's a law that we're, we're born into this world and we are under its authority and we're under the situation of this law. The situation that you're born into is obey it and live, disobey and die. If we want to be accepted by God, if we want to have eternal life, then you must obey to perfection. Because none of us have done this, the message of the gospel is that God made a way for us to be forgiven for us to be accepted, joined to him, even though we fall short of his law. Christ accomplished his work of atonement for sins. And now if we will come to the father through faith in the Lord Jesus, we will be forgiven. We are accepted by God. God says, I'll give it all to you right now. Eternal life, acceptance with me. You get it all by faith and justification is the moment where we are joined. Like in the illustration with marriage, the Bible uses that illustration. We are joined and attached to Christ. But then there comes this question after I'm a Christian. Now, how do I relate to the law of God? Now, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to think of the law? How am I supposed to interact with that law? And that is some of what has been being addressed here in Romans 7. What's happening in this section is we're seeing how our justification affects how we live. How do we honor God? How do we glorify God? Chapter 7 is showing us some. It's not exhaustive, but it's showing us some of how we relate to the law. And so thus far, we have seen chapter 7 show us that we have died to the law. Okay, so we did a lot of work to come to that conclusion. But then there's some other parts of this that are kind of confusing because he goes on to speak of the law as good. In the next section, 14 to the end of the chapter, he's going to say more things about how we interact with the law. And he's going to speak in a way that we still use the law. So, I mean, you, we see the confusion here. Christians have been wrestling through this for 2,000 years. You know, to, to quote uh, Piper, he says, sometimes God has given us things in the Bible. We have to beat our heads against the text until it yields to us. And sometimes that takes years of meditation on these things. And so the difficulty here is if we've been, if we've died to the law and we've been released from the law, why does the New Testament constantly speak of the law as good and as useful to us Christians? This is part of the difficulty of how do we relate to it? And this is, this is a natural kind of question. And, and I want to submit to you that this question comes up maybe more than you think it does. This question is asked all the time by Christians and then by those who make professions of Christ but don't actually submit to him as well by professing Christians all the time and they don't even realize that they're asking it. Do you know what I mean by that? All the time we ask questions and we don't realize we're asking it. 
okay? Like whenever you read the gospels and you see Jesus interacting with people, we have those times where somebody asks Jesus a question and then he responds and we're like, he didn't, he didn't address their question at all. Yes, he did. But what he did is he answered the question beneath the question that they didn't even know they should have been asking. And that is the root beneath it, the presuppositions beneath it. We as Christians are dealing with this all the time and a lot of times don't even realize it. Let me give one for instance. Anytime that people are talking about life as a Christian, life in the new covenant, and they have a lax view of sin, they are addressing Romans 7 and they don't even know it. And, 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 and one of these examples, and, and I bring it up because it is, it is common, it's, it's happening. Every time, you, every time that we see this, this would actually summarize, unfortunately, the majority of Christian, very dramatic quotations, Christian counseling that exists in our land. Um, just because somebody says that counseling is Christian doesn't mean it has anything to do with Christianity. But a lot of times, here's what will happen. Somebody will come to a pastor or a counselor and they'll say, I have this thing that I want to do, but the Bible says I shouldn't do it. Or at least there's this group of Christians who tell me that the Bible says I, I shouldn't do it. So what am I supposed to do? And a lot of times really at the heart, what they want is somebody to give them a justification to go do this thing. But I got this thing that I want to do. And then they might proceed to tell all the reasons of like, here's why this thing would be so good. You know, it makes financial sense. Or I was born this way. Or, you know, I love my girlfriend. Or I know he's not a Christian, but I, I really want to marry him. And he's such a nice guy. There's this thing I want to do. Here is, unfortunately, the majority of counsel that is coming. It's something along the lines of, you know, look, in the end, all that matters is, do you love Jesus? Jesus just wants you to be happy. Like that's, that's what he's about. Everything is just about, he wants you to be fulfilled. And so if this thing brings you happiness, you know, the Bible's, you know, just, just a guideline for happiness and fulfillment. You, you do what makes you happy. In th that situation plays out all the time. What is happening in that instance is they are addressing Romans 7 and they don't even know it. They're addressing Romans 7, but they're jacking it up. They're, they're not seeing the truth that is here. How we are to think about God's law and how we relate to the law, it is a practical matter. It's a matter that addresses um, every single day how we live unto God. And so I know that this whole subject is confusing at times. Like, no joke, this is not an easy chapter. God has just been unwilling to give us a Bible that's full of just coffee mug cliches, okay? Like a lot of times that's what we want. Just, just give me a quick catchy sentence. It'd be better if it rhymes that I can remember that will help guide me. God is just unwilling to do that. And there are times that he gives us hard things that we meditate on for decades and make more progress over the course of years. And I submit to you that this whole law thing is one of those. You're gonna meditate on this for a long, long time. I still have, pertaining to this, I still got a list of 
half a dozen at least questions. I'd like to have a conversation with an angel and get to ask those things, okay? Because it's not clear and there are complexities, but I do want to show you the things that the Bible has made clear about how we are to think of the law and how we are to meditate or how, how we are to relate on the law. So we said verses one through 13 has four main points. We've covered two of them thus far. Um, we have died to the law. And when we were in the flesh under the law, the law multiplied and, and stirred more sin. But the point number three is what we're ready for today. And that is the goodness of the law, the goodness of the law. And so we're going to, we're going to take all this morning. I was, I was thinking we might be able to get through all of it, but to slow down sufficiently so that we didn't rush this point, I want to spend the whole morning just meditating on the goodness of the law. And so I've got two sub points underneath that. The first one is, um, simply what is clearly in this passage that the law is holy and righteous and good. God has communicated his standard of righteousness in the law. And then secondly, a related topic that doesn't get addressed specifically in verses one through 13, but it's coming in the next section. It's this one. How do we as new covenant Christians interact with the law that's been revealed in the Old Testament? So we're gonna spend a little bit of time meditating on the goodness of the law. So the first part here is just simply the law is holy and righteous and good. Um, to, to lay a little bit more of the groundwork, to remind us a little bit more of the foundations. Romans has showed us that all mankind is born under the law. Um, you may not realize it, but that's, that's actually kind of a controversial statement, okay? It was a controversial statement when, when Paul made it in the first century, and it also is a controversial statement today. It shouldn't be because Romans makes the point about five times that all mankind is under the law. But in the first century, Many of the Jews in Paul's day believed that only Israel had God's law. And so only Israel was under the law. And then they said, and that's why we're the only ones who can be saved. Because we're the only ones who can obey the law in order to build righteousness and be saved. Well, the book of Romans addresses several points of error in that line of thinking. You know, So number one, you don't build righteousness in order to be right with God. It's all or nothing. If you break the law, even in one place, we saw in James, you've broken all of it. Righteousness must come another way. But another argument that's been made in Romans is to prove this point. All mankind, even the Gentiles who didn't have the scriptures, are still under the law. If you jump back to chapter 2, verse 14, and I encourage you to do that, please. Chapter 2, verse 14, and look at the language that he uses there. He says, Gentiles instinctively know the law. And verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So those who do not have the scriptures, the nations of the earth, if they don't have the Bible, how do they have God's law? It's written on their hearts, okay? Um, he goes on to say their conscience aids them in understanding the law. He goes on in chapter three, verses 19 and 20 to say all of the world is under the authority of the law of God. And then about two other times he made the same point. Okay. So, so I'm just establishing this. All mankind is born under the law of God, even if you don't have access to the scriptures, because the law is written on your hearts, that natural law, that's the law we're born under. What God did with Israel is at Mount Sinai, God in an act of grace fully explained all the law 
the natural law. And then he was establishing them as a nation. And so he, he explained justice to them, which by the way, I believe still applies. I think that's clear from scripture. Whatever is just is actual, is, is also moral. And then the part that gets confusing though with Israel was that ceremonial part. You remember this, some of this is review. That ceremonial law, and we're gonna talk about some of them today. The washings, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, strange laws about things like when you're gonna plow up your fields, don't, don't yoke an oxen and a donkey together and be unequally yoked. And we think, what does that have to do with anything? We're gonna address and see some of what the New Testament teaches, but understand that ceremonial part was meant to be temporary and in Christ, in the new covenant, in the law of Christ, we are no longer to keep those aspects, but we are going to see there are, there are parts of those truths that continue in the law of Christ. There are ways that God still tells us to use the law in this, but the law of God is good. We're born under it and it's good. So in Christ, we've been saved by faith. We've died to the law. We've been released from it. And the New Testament speaks of that as a good thing. So you can see the natural question that maybe a first time reader of the Bible would have. You have died to the law, you're released from the law, and then chapter eight is gonna call the law weak. Somebody could say, well, does that mean then that the, the law is bad? Okay, we know the answer to that. Look at verse seven. What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be? Of course not. And here's the first way he says that the law is good. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin. The law exposes my sin and there leads me to the gospel, leads me to know my need for a savior. Look at verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the conclusion is the law of God, you were born under the natural law, it's good. The problem is I'm bad. God did not save us from out from under the law because the law was bad, but the law condemned me. God decided he was going to save you. So how is he going to save you if the law condemns you? He made a way for you to fulfill the law by Christ fulfilling it on your behalf and then you to be delivered into a new covenant, a covenant of grace. We're under grace, but we're gonna see that because we love the Lord, there is still a law we are to keep, but we keep it for different reasons and from a different perspective. The law of Christ does not condemn us. We obey because we love him. God's law is beautiful. It is still beautiful. It is infinitely wise still today. It is the very definition of what is righteous and unrighteous. And the New Testament teaches that we Christians are to still use the law to see the righteousness of God. So let's meditate on that just a little bit. If you, if you want to um, flip to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms for a moment, turn to uh, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, uh, by the way, the two places in the book of Psalms that show these things the clearest are 19 and 119. Psalm 19 uh, addresses how God has revealed himself first in general revelation, second in special revelation, the scriptures. Find verse seven there of Psalm 19. Look what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring 
the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. They are more desirable than gold. Is that how you think of God's law? More desirable than gold. And let me ask you, for the New Testament Christian, is Psalm 19 still true? Is the law of God still more desirable than gold? The answer is yes. But we have to learn how to read it and how to use it. Um, let me finish verse 10 there. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I love poetic language like that. Uh, jump to 119. Psalm 119. Longest chapter of the entire Bible. And it is all about, here's the, here's the summary. Oh, how I love your law. Longest chapter in the Bible. And it is about the beauty and the wisdom of the law of God. I'm going to roll us through just, just some verses here. So verse one, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse four, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Jump to verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 160, flip a couple pages. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. 172, let my tongue sing of your word for all your commandments are righteous. All right, the law is good. The law is holy. His law is righteous, meaning that it is just. Like, are we not as a nation Divided right now over what is justice. The law of God reveals perfect justice and reveals righteousness. And, and just one of the main points I'm making today, it is an obvious point, but we're going to go deeper with it, is that in the New Testament, the law is still good. Like we don't scrap it once we become a Christian. The law is still good. We have to learn how to use it. Here, here's a funny phrase from the New Testament. We have to learn how to use the law lawfully. Thanks, Paul. Use the law lawfully, but he teaches us how. He shows us in some of the ways of how we do that. God's law is still good. The law of God for the Christian still does Psalm 19. It restores the soul. It is beautiful. It brings delight. When, the, when Romans 7 and 8 tell us that the law is weak, what it means is it does not have the strength to save the one who brings it. The law couldn't save you. The gospel is stronger. The gospel is God's grace that comes to save us, even though we could not keep it. The law was condemning us, but that does not mean that the law is bad. And still as a Christian, we are to see and use the law. 
Um, God's law, it still is the standard. And we are to rejoice in that. It is the standard of what is righteous. And so the way that, you know, modern folks would say it more, it is the standard of morality. It is the standard of what is good and evil. God's law declares for all time what is righteous, what is unrighteous, what is just and what is unjust. And listen, this is a really important truth. What is beautiful and what is ugly. That's a meaningful statement because one of the new pushes is this whole idea of, yeah, I know the Bible is against it, but it's beautiful. No, it's not. If God condemns it, it's not beautiful. It's ugly. If God says it's wicked, then it is wicked. If God says that something is good, then it is beautiful. And, and we are to see that he is the standard. He sets the standard of what is beautiful and what is ugly. Studying God's law is the kind of thing that we do for decades and we come to see more of its genius. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll never stop encouraging you to read the Bible through every single year. Okay, to regular, just systematically read through the Bible and then start all over again and keep doing it. And when you do that, you'll encounter the law over and over and over again. And, and especially places like Exodus 20 to 23, those four chapters where God lays out um, laws of justice and such. And I'm going to tell you, whenever you read those sections, you are going to encounter individual laws that will bother you at first. They will bother you, but I am telling you, begin with the premise that I am not the judge of what is right and wrong, God is. And then ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions of the Bible. And so when God says things like that a certain crime, the person should be brought into the, the middle of the city and is to be flogged. Modern sentiments read that and be like, ooh, you know, we, we, we don't do that. That's bad. That's, that's violent. That's... Give it time. Give it time and look and see if the way that God said to execute justice really makes sense and compare it with the ways that our nation does justice and does it differently and ask the question, which one is wiser? I again and again come back to the law in places like, you know, okay, so God declared what should happen to a thief. So what is the punishment that should come to a thief? Well, what happens in our culture? Well, they're put in prison. The one who has been stolen from never gets back what was stolen. Person goes in prison, spends some time, and he comes out three times worse a criminal than when he went in. In the law of God, what was commanded? The thief was to repay what had been stolen with interest, and the judge was given some latitude there. If, he, if there was a need and circumstances, there could be some grace showing that maybe he only paid back what was stolen plus a little bit more. But if it was very severe, up to four times as much. And then if he couldn't pay it back, he would work off his debt. You tell me which one is more wise. Over and over again, as you study the law of God and you see, it's just like pedophilia would stop if we did that. Husbands abusing their wives would stop if we did that. The law of God is wise. And even though there are those places that maybe offend the modern sentiment, you give it time, you will see the wisdom of what God has laid out. But of course, God's law is not all just justice. Like here's the punishment for crimes and such. It is declaring what is right and what is wrong. But you'll notice this. How does the average person in the world determine right and wrong? 
the opinion of the masses. What does everybody else believe? Have you heard this statement here recently? Because here we are. This is a very timely kind of message for us to meditate on these things. Here we are at a place that only three weeks ago, our nation was thrown into chaos. And now, repeatedly, I've heard these people say things like, I don't know, I don't know what's right and wrong anymore. I don't know how to determine what's right and what's wrong. When somebody says something like that, take a step back. What is being exposed is, they were determining righteousness based on what everybody else believed and they told me what I'm supposed to believe. Listen, the opinions of the masses is an ever shifting roller coaster. It never stops changing. And listen, it'll change 180 degrees. Like, isn't it interesting that only about seven decades ago, the opinion of the masses in our culture was against interracial dating and marriage. And now here we are several decades later and we're 180 degrees, the masses in a different direction. By the way, we should rejoice when culture figures some stuff out and gets it right. But in that same time ago, seven decades ago, the masses were hated certain sexual sins. And now here we are, you are hated if you say one word of disagreement against anything sexual. Over and over again, we see the masses shifting their courses and what the world begins to promote as the new righteousness. Guys, every time this happens, there's a whole new religion that comes with it. it the, whole, the whole, do you remember several years back when environmentalism began to rise and rise? And listen, as a Christian, you can want to care for the planet and be good stewards. There's nothing wrong with that. But you did see the religion of environmentalism begin to rise as the new righteousness. And this is what everybody talked about. It was all the time. It was all the time going. You think about things like, you ever ask, like, how did prohibition come about? There was a time when the masses hated alcohol. It's what everybody talked about. You went on the streets. It's just like everybody today is talking about racism. Everywhere you went, the only thing people were talking about is alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. Prohibition comes about. Now we're completely 180 degrees the opposite as a culture. My point, the masses never change or excuse me, are always changing. The opinions, if you are going to determine that you're gonna make sure you're always in, you're always in tune with the beliefs and stances of culture to make sure that you know on your social media you post the right thing so that everybody approves of you. You get the nod from the general approval of culture. You are gonna change for the rest of your life. And there'll come a day that you just don't even know what to believe. You don't know how to be popular. In the midst of all of that, how beautiful it is that the law of God reveals righteousness eternally. The law of God, listen to me very carefully, is based on the character of God. The character of God never changes. And the law is a reflection of his character. Why is lying evil? Listen, that's not just an arbitrary law that could be there or not be there. Lying is evil because God is truthful. God is a God of truth, righteousness, justice. We are called as his people to be people of truth and integrity. The law reflects the character of God. The essence of the law is God communicating what he said to Abraham, even though he didn't give Abraham a law. Interesting. But he told Abraham, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. 
God spelling out his law in the scripture is kind of like him saying, let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you some practical ways that you can be holy like I am holy and the law contains it. The law is good. Now, this does lead us to questions, okay? Because here we are, the new covenant Christian, everything I said, you know, just, all right, we get that. Okay, pastor. But we know that the Old Testament, there are parts we're not supposed to keep. So what do you mean the law eternally declares what is righteous? This, this comes some of the difficulty of those things. But here is part of what we've shown. I want to kind of say it from the beginning. In the new covenant, we have the law of Christ. That part's pretty easy. The New Testament has a lot of moral instruction. But what we also see is that we go back to the Old Testament and we read places that are still a part, okay? Like the Ten Commandments. We read they're still a part of what it means to honor God. But even those places where we no longer obey this ceremonial law, the ceremonial law still preached a truth and that truth is eternal. We'll get into some examples as we go um, here in a little bit. But God has declared what is righteous and what is good. Um, there was a movement that took place several decades ago that is still causing us a lot of confusion. And it's where some of the confusion in our culture comes from. It was this real wussified approach to the Bible that basically treated the Old Testament as that was that time when God was always in a bad mood. And the coming of Jesus represents when, you know, God decided to be nice. And so he did away with all of his meanness in the Old Testament. You've probably encountered that view at some point in your lives. It is severely misunderstanding the law and scripture, but most importantly, the character of God. It's misunderstanding the character of God. R.C. Sproul told the story one time that he was invited to preach at a church on a Sunday night. He preaches there and afterwards he was invited back to somebody's house uh, for a time of prayer and some dessert. So he goes, they go into the living room, they shut off the lights and this whole group from the church gets down on their knees and begins to pray to their dead ancestors. Once Sproul realized what was happening here, he awkwardly interrupted them and stopped them and goes, you know, what are you guys doing? And they begin to give all their reasons. Oh, well, you know, we have found this. I feel very connected to my ancestors and we ask them to help us and pray for us in these various kinds of ways. And Sproul begins to explain to them, look, don't you know God's word forbids this? You know, this is, this is mediums. This is sorcery. This is occultist stuff. They go, that's the old law. Jesus undid that. Here comes the kinds of misunderstandings that can come. We have died to the law in that we are no longer under its judgments and that situation. But the law of God is still our guide into how we honor God. And even though that part, by the way, sorcery is not repeated in the New Testament, not to participate in mediums and witchcraft, but being a Christian witch is not a legitimate Christian practice, okay? We see some things from the Old Testament law that informs us eternally about how we honor God. And so it brings up, you know, the question, if the law is good, but I've been released from it, how am I supposed to treat it? How do I relate to it? Um, Paul is going to address some of these kinds of things in the next section. Um, for instance, if you're there in Romans 7, if you look at verse 16, he says, I agree with the law 
Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 25, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But then he says on the other, I struggle to obey it. He's going to address this question indirectly of how do I relate to the law? But I thought it would be helpful for us to do this this morning, still meditating on the goodness of the law. So how do we relate to the law of God? So I mentioned a second ago that the stuff in the New Testament, that part's, that part's easy, okay? The New Testament gives a lot of moral instruction. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, do this, don't do this, beauty and ugliness, that's there. But where some of the confusing parts comes in is that the New Testament regularly references Old Testament law and speaks as though it still instructs us. And then it will even in some ways address ceremonial laws from the Old Testament. And we'll say, we learn this principle and the principle is applied to the new covenant Christian. So how are we to understand? So here, here would be one of the biggest questions. How do I as a Christian read the Old Testament? What am I supposed to get out of it? What parts am I supposed to see in this? The New Testament teaches us how to read it in the right way. So part of it involves there are some changes that have been made. In the introduction, I gave the illustration about the man who fell in love with the woman and the standards and these kinds of things. A change of the situation. Once he was trying to keep her standard in order to gain her love and acceptance. But then he was accepted and now he regards her standards as a way to show love to her. And this is a similar way that we interact with God's law. We were once under his law in that we needed to keep it in order to be right with him. But now in Christ, we are right with him. And so we relate to the law differently. We relate to the law now as sons and daughters. So for instance, do my children have to obey my rules? Well, I would say it depends on what you mean by have to. If you, if you say, well, do they have to obey in order to be your child and for you to love them? The answer is no, because I love them even when they break my rules. But are they under my authority? And is there a kind of have to? Yes. Do you see the difference there? The difference is whether we are in union with God or whether we are already accepted and we regard his authority as the one we love and submit to. So when we ask the question, uh, do we have to obey the law of Christ? It depends on what you mean by have to. We don't have to in order to be saved. We are saved by faith. But because we love him, we obey the law of Christ because we have submitted to his authority. There has been a change of circumstance, a change of situation, and yes, a change of the way that even specific commandments are to be viewed. So for instance, in Hebrews 7, 12, this is a verse we've referenced in the past. It talks about that there's been a change of covenant and a change of priesthood. Jesus is now our high priest. And when there is a change of priesthood, there is a change of law also. So those ceremonial parts of the Old Testament they have been fulfilled. You are not instructed to go sacrifice lambs, engage in the washings anymore. That's been fulfilled in Christ, but we can't miss this. The truths that God taught in those ceremonial laws 
preach eternal truths that still apply to us and we are to be instructed by. Take for instance the instruction that we, uh, that in the Old Testament they were to make sacrifices of lambs and goats and God told them that they were to take the best of their flock. They were not to take the sick and the lame, they were to take the best. In the New Testament, how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and I? Well, we're still commanded to make offerings. You are still commanded to make sacrifices as a new covenant Christian. But what we're told is when we sing and sing praises unto God, we are offering up sacrifices of praise to him. When you obey his commandments, when you love your neighbor and forgive your enemy, you are making offerings unto God. It's no longer sacrifices of blood, but it is sacrifices of worship. And we are still to give to God our best. We are still to offer unto God that which is unblemished and honoring to him, the first and the best. So the ceremonial laws illustrated and preached truths that we are to see and we are to regard. And as you go through every single ceremonial commandment, there is some truth that is being shown that we are to see. It either helps us understand the gospel and what Christ did, or it helps us understand some way that we obey him. So the way that a, a leper was cleansed, if you go read that section in Leviticus, that section is just screaming the gospel and pointing to help us understand what Christ has done in cleansing us before God. And in other places, there are some sections of the New Testament that take that principle of, um, okay, take the two animals if you're gonna plow your fields or your garden, an oxen, and a donkey. The New Testament takes that law and applies it to tell us that a Christian is not to marry an unchristian, that you are not to be unequally yoked, unequally joined to an unbeliever because what fellowship has the people of God with the people of darkness. And so that ceremonial law preaches a truth and that truth applies even through the New Testament. You go through every one and there is some way that God is showing eternal things. So the Christian is to read the law, even those commandments that are not a part of the law of Christ, and we still learn from them. We're still guided by them. But let me show you some examples where the New Testament um, makes reference uh, to the law and even some Old Testament things. Um, if you're in Romans, jump to chapter 13 for a moment. Romans 13, look at verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Jump down to verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Um, if you jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, find verse 8. That's interesting here. Um, the subject is Paul is communicating to this church there, their uh, responsibility to pay their leaders. And in order to make that point, look at how he does it. Verse eight, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That seems like a, a strange kind of individual law there. But look what he says. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. 
because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Old Testament ceremonial law showing an eternal principle and the principle is applied in the new covenant. We are being taught how to read the Old Testament, how to see the truths and see the eternal things that God has taught. No, we're not under the law of Moses, like in the same way that we once were. You're not under it. You're under the law of Christ. But the law of Christ reads the Old Testament and learns and applies. Um, if you jump to, uh, you're in 1 Corinthians, jump to chapter 14 for a moment. Look at verse 34. 1434, this is addressing um, the teaching with authority, preaching and teaching in the church. Um, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, that's in that teaching context, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. He's saying there's a principle taught in the law and that principle continues into the New Testament. Um, if you come to Galatians chapter five, you don't have to turn there, but he says a similar kind of thing here. Does not the law also say, and then he gives an explanation. Jump to Ephesians though for a moment. This is a helpful one. Ephesians chapter six, start there in verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now look what he does. He quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Taking Old Testament commandments, showing us how to read them in the New Testament. The New Testament expects us to read and study the Old Testament, expects us to be informed about it, expects us to want to please God and to seek to do so. But, but you'll notice this about the New Testament. This is an important distinction but, and the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. In the New Covenant, there is an emphasis on your relationship to God is the priority. Love God is the priority and the law of Christ guides us, helps us know how do I treat him? How do I honor him? How do I glorify him? The New Testament does not give an emphasis on law, law, law. The emphasis is to live is Christ. To live is Christ. The emphasis is on the law of love and the law aids us. Love is the priority. The law helps us glorify God. It, similar to just how you relate to people. Husbands, love your wives, okay? There's a command from the New Testament. But when you and I think that, love your wives, and you hear that instruction, does your mind immediately think, rules, rules, rules? Hopefully not. Your wife will not feel very loved, okay? If a husband only interacts with his wife according to law, 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 and law is first, his wife will feel very unloved because it's all externals. The New Testament helps us to comprehend that love and relationship, the desire to glorify God, that's the high priority. Do you want to do that? Let me help show you. Here, here's the law. Here's your friend. <laughs> the law to help you know how to glorify God, to help you to know. Probably the most helpful statement in all of the Bible on this subject is John 14, verse 15. You can turn there if you want. Needs to be underlined in our Bibles. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. There's the priority. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's love first, 
But the commandments are part of how we love him. To live as Christ, not to live as law keeping. To live as Christ. And God's law aids us and helps us. The law is a guide, helping us to see how to act on our love for God. And here's an important question. You know, we've already asked it here. So as we come to, come to this and think of it, do we say the words, we have to keep the law of Christ. We have to obey God. Again, it, mean, it depends on what you mean by have to. We do not obey God in order to be saved. Christ in grace brings us to the Father. We love him, delight in him. You've been saved from that situation where the law was arousing sin in you. We're put in grace. God's law is written on our hearts in a way that we now desire it. And so for a people who say, God, I want to please you. How do I do it? God says, here's the law. Here's the instruction of the New Testament. Here's the New Testament showing you how to go back and read some of the parts that's not repeated in the New Testament, but you'll learn how to interpret it. And here's some of the ceremonial parts which teach eternal truths. And here's how you apply those eternal truths. Confused? It has difficulty. This is why Christians have wrestled through this for a long time. But it's like this. Our obedience to God shows the heart. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to obey his commandments? Okay, that will be shown. Do you want to obey him? The presence of that desire where you pray to God and you say, God, I want to obey you. And you know, even whenever you're confessing sin, but I'm struggling here and here and here and here, that desire to obey him glorifies him. And if we want to obey him, you ain't gonna do it perfectly, but we will grow to a pattern where we do keep his commandments. And that's why some of the places of the New Testament sound the way that they do. There are some places of the New Testament that sound like it's teaching salvation by works. Like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where we're told um, fornicators, adulterers, greedy, the coveters will not inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds like salvation by works. No. He says, it is an identifier of those who are in Christ. Those who have a heart change. Are you washed? Are you justified? Are you being sanctified? A desire to obey will be present and will be growing. And if there's a desire to obey, we will obey. We will grow in obedience. We will live a pattern of life that shows we want to obey him. So the law of God still plays a part of how the Christian lives. It's not all law, 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 but the law is a guide. And this is part of how we serve him is by obeying and even striving and wrestling through passages like this. So for us Christian, let's grow in our desire to obey him. Let's keep fighting and struggling. Let's pray along with Psalm 119. Oh Lord, show me more of your law. Your law is my delight. Help me to obey you. And if you're here and you are outside of Christ, you've never turned to Christ to be saved. You do need to understand if you're trying to be right with God based on your goodness, I want to beg you to do this. Read the law. 
Go to Exodus 20 to 23 sometime. Read through the sections that show how to be righteous on your own. Um, it's been identified that the Old Testament contains 613 individual commands. Good luck. You will never do it. And you have to realize it's not okay for you to say, well, I'm mostly good. That is not enough for heaven. That is not enough for God. The Bible says you break the law one part, you've shattered the window. It's broken. You are a lawbreaker. Lawbreakers are not allowed in the kingdom of heaven. Your only hope is for someone to keep the law on your behalf and it be counted as yours. That's what Christ did. Christ kept it on our behalf so that we are counted as righteous. And now God says, live in joy, live in gratitude, love me. And if you love me, then you will show it by your obedience. Let's live out this love and obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your truths and we thank you for how you instruct us and, and show us. And Father, give us greater clarity in these things. The complexities that are here help us to grow in our understanding and help us, God, to please you and glorify you with, with our lives, oh God. I, I pray, Lord, that you will keep transforming. You will keep building us up to become more useful. I pray for all of us in the room right now. I pray, God, that as we live out this week, that we will have opportunities to share the gospel opportunities to point people to the truth of Christ, Lord, and, and to build your kingdom. So please use us and give us your blessing as we leave. We pray all these things through Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.